We are continuing in our series on shalom. I was able to kick that off with us a while back, and we're continuing with it and talking about these aspects of what it means for us to flourish. The word shalom uh, typically means peace, but the word t- peace is just so kind of small a word. Uh, we've reduced it to the absence of conflict, and it is so much more rich than that. I had a car when I was in high school. It wasn't really mine. It was my dad's, but I kind of got to have the keys for it and call it mine. And it was one of those cars where you couldn't fill the gas tank very easily. And I discovered early on that if the car was angled in a particular direction, um, that I could never fill the gas tank completely full. You know, it was just, it, it, the, the gas tank was flat, and the gas station I would go to, it was on an angle, and it was one of those fill from the back of the car sort of a things, you know, so I'm going way back, right? And, um, and I realized that when I would fill it up, I would think I would get it completely full of fuel and realize when I turned it over, I, I had missed again. Wasn't, wasn't completely full. And there was just a frustration with that, figuring out how can I get this tank completely full and a little bit of a game to do it. And, you know, part of me said, if a car had feelings, and uh, some people I, I was growing up with actually thought their cars not only had feelings, they had names. Anybody name your car? Well, let's hear some of the names. What is it? Monty. He's actually speaking in a little while after Sarah's. So we'll have to talk to him about that. What else? What was it? Diamond Lil. Yes. King. That's good, yeah. <laughs> was it Ford? It was, it was a comment, yeah. All right, any other names? Yes. Blow. Blow? Flow. 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 Okay. My, ma- my daughter wanted to name one of her cars Gramps. I mean, you can just kind of picture what that car looked like, can't you? You know, we, we kind of tie these names in because we think it has a personality, and we know cars don't have a personality and they don't have feelings, but if they did, wouldn't you want to make sure that your gas tank actually could fill up completely? You know, just kind of be fully utilized for what it was made to do. Well, cars don't have feelings, but we do, and we have goals and aspirations, and unfortunately, there are ways that we can handle life in such a way that we never fill up our gas tank completely full, our peace tank completely full. You see, there, is a, there are dimensions to shalom that God wants us to experience in our life, and uh, wouldn't it be a tragedy to go through life and never figure out how to experience all of it? And so we've been talking about the aspects of shalom over the course of this last month. There are a couple more pieces of it. One that we're going to address today actually comes from Psalm 67 where it talks about this blessing, this joy, this sense of harvest fullness and celebration of that. Peace really, shalom, human flourishing that is actually connected to what God wants to do in the world. So I want to make three observations from Psalm 67 and then as we have been doing, invite uh, someone to come up and tell a story and describe how that theme that God has for us intersects with the world that we live in. So three brief observations from Psalm 67. The first one is this, uh, that, that there's a bundling that is going on here, a bundling between me experiencing peace and shalom and the nations experiencing peace and shalom. My peace 
leads to their peace. And actually, there's another piece of it. Their peace leads to my peace. My flourishing, God intends to lead to their flourishing, and their flourishing leads to my flourishing. You see, there's this cosmic bundling that God has put together. Do you want to experience shalom? We will experience it as the world experiences it. In fact, we'll participate in it. You know, the bundling is a big deal these days. I was in the grocery store a little while ago, and someone marketing-wise had bundled together in some sort of a character. They had engineered uh, shampoo and conditioner, just bundled together right there. NyQuil, daytime and nighttime, bundled together. Peanut butter and jelly, kind of bundled together, right? I mean, you've seen these things, right? There's even, um, uh, what was another one that I, uh, ketchup and mustard, you know, bundled because you know, these two things, they fit together. If you want this, you're gonna, you're gonna want this as well. There's bundling in Psalm 67. If you want peace for yourself and flourishing for yourself, it's bundled together with flourishing for the world, flourishing for the nations as well. There's a sense of we're blessed and the world is blessed. The world is blessed and we are blessed. That's the first thing we notice in Psalm 67. The second thing is this, is the focus of Psalm 67. This just isn't a collection of words right here. Oftentimes we can look at scripture and say they're just a bunch of words. Well, there's more than words. There's intentionality even in the way these words are put together. And maybe you noticed it together. Maybe you noticed it this morning. Did you see verse three and verse five? Do you see them? Kids, if you get points for memorizing scriptures, pick three and five. Because if you get three, you got five. If your dad and mom pay you a dollar for memorizing a verse, uh, sorry parents, I'm just kind of letting it out. Pick chapter verse three and then pick verse five and you get verse three and you got verse five. You see, they're the same words identically. In fact, what it, this is called is the way that, that, that um, uh, literature was put together to make a particular point. And it's a chiasm. And the word chiasm is because there's a Greek letter and it looks like an X. And you know, so on the X, you know, look at the left side of it. It sticks out at the bottom. It goes towards the middle and then it goes towards the end. And this is what a piece of literature looks like. At the top and the bottom, it's the same thing. The second and the fourth is the same thing. And then there's that one right in the middle, the three, and that's it. Everything leads to that. And you'll see this in parables, you'll see it in a variety of ancient Near Eastern material. You see it right here in this. And we see it very clearly in verse three and verse five. We're halfway in. Where do we start? We start out with the nations and ourselves being blessed. We get to the middle and we see that it involves praising God with ourselves and all of the people. And then we get to the punchline, the focus, the great object, and it is this, that God be glorified by all of the nations. This universal, the joy of God's universal rule. That's where shalom comes from. That's the result. Uh, uh, when, when God is ruling, shalom comes to us. And our intention in living a life of shalom is so that God is glorified through us as well. That's the punchline of Psalm 67, verse four. May the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you rule the peoples with equity and guide the nations of the earth. This is the great objective, the joy of his universal rule experienced 
by all of the people of the world. So we've talked about the bundling, our, our flourishing and theirs. The focus is that God would be glorified by all of the nations. And then the nature of our mission is described here too. And, and briefly, it is this. The nature of the mission isn't that they know God, it's they experience shalom. It's not merely that they know who God is and they say, thumbs up for God. It's that they actually experience things from God that allow their lives to be characterized by shalom, by flourishing, by blessing, enriching, by joy, by harvest, by a sense of fullness and completeness. So you see, our objective isn't simply to tell people, vote for Jesus. It's to tell people how to embrace what God desires for their life and then to experiencing the fullness that comes from it. To think that God is interested merely in converts is to miss the point. His intention is flourishing. That the world would flourish and that God would be glorified. There is the challenge for us. And we have some friends, uh, Drew and Lauren Timberlake, that have been in Nepal recently and we sent them off in February. Who had a clue what would happen? And uh, so we would love for Drew and Lauren to be able to come up now and talk about how they see this played out in the experiences that they've had in Nepal and what it's done for them. So Lauren and Drew, thank you so much for being here with us this morning. Good morning. Uh, It is a privilege to be here. Uh, The last time we were standing on this stage was four months ago, around about that time. And, uh, And you guys commissioned us to go to Nepal and little did we know how important that commissioning was going to be. And so um, it's, it's fun to be back here and try to tell you what all God has done, but it's actually a really difficult task because, one, uh, there's so much that happened and we don't have all day to talk, uh, unfortunately. Um, but also, um, you know, there's still a lot that we're unpacking from that experience, and there's still a lot of rawness to it and, and whatnot. And so... Uh, so anyway, that's why we're both here. There's kind of a moral support. So if, uh, if I start breaking down, Lauren can take over but, um, and vice versa. And also if I start going too long and rambling, which I have a tendency to do, she can kick me in the shins and, and, uh, and we'll move on. So anyway, I'll let Lauren kind of start off with, uh, with the story. Okay, well, in March, you all sent us off, like Drew said, and we left as a family. Um, we have three children over here, Oliver, Ezra, and Lois. And we left uh, to spend 10 weeks in Nepal. And um, we went uh, to basically spend time with our friends at Sundradoka Church, which is Hillcrest sponsors and supports. And we met our friends through Hillcrest on a trip six years ago. And that friendship has just gotten deeper and deeper into our lives and our hearts. And uh, we can't imagine not knowing them now. And we had... um, just been looking for opportunities to invite our kids deeper into that and to just see what God had for us and for them and to love them well. And so we decided as a family to go. And it was kind of arbitrary. We didn't have anything in particular we were uh, going to do or to a project that we were invited to do or anything like that. Um, We just felt like we had a strong value for loving people and God had given us friends in Nepal and we wanted Um, We basically had three loose objectives. We wanted to uh, 
invite our kids into a broader perspective of the world and of God and of what his heart is. And we wanted to invest in our relationship with Sundardoka and with the Adikari family, the <coughs> church leaders there, and just love them and spend time growing our friendship with them. And then third, we thought it might be a good idea to pursue um, creating uh, like a nonprofit organization so that we could help fund things from the United States to Nepal to help kind of some of the work that they do. And Sundardoka is a really cool organization. They basically are like a Ronald McDonald house and they welcome people from all the different villages in Nepal into the capital when they need acute medical care. Um, if they have a disability or a birth defect or an accident, especially children. And they love people really well and they serve them and they house them, they feed them and they help them navigate the healthcare system and um, they share God's love with them, and then they send them back to their villages whole and healed in, in many ways or on the road towards that. Um, so we, um, when we got there, we didn't really know what life would look like, and so we just kind of started doing, started a regular everyday routine. We would get up, and we'd walk down to the church building, and we would do things like play, bubble, play with bubbles, and the kids would do their schoolwork, um, I would help in the office as much as I could. I'd interview some patients and write some stories in English about things that had happened. And Drew just spent his time learning about what it takes to start a nonprofit and what that means and how to do that and to fill out all the paperwork and forms and everything like that. So we were just going about our daily life and just spending time with people and making friends. Um, this little boy here had, uh, was going for heart surgery and he had his first birthday while we were there. But our friends, our kids became friends with those kids that were living there, and it was good. And then um, everything changed. On uh, Saturday, April 25th, there was a massive earthquake, and um, we were, as a family, in our mostly in our home. Our younger kids were playing outside, and Oliver and Drew and I were in our second-story apartment when it didn't take long to figure out what was going on. I've never experienced anything like that, and it was intense. And... Um, we were safe. Um, Drew ran down the stairs because our kids were outside, and and Lois fell down. <laughs> and um, uh, and Oliver and I, I just sat down <laughs> and waited until the shaking stopped, and then we went outside to meet with our family. And once we got outside, we saw our whole neighborhood coming out of homes and into the open area in front of our home, and we. Um, even we were breathing hard, and it was kind of scary, and we were like, well, what just happened? But even in that intensity, um, our family, we had a strong sense that God was with us, and we knew that um, our house was okay, we were okay, we were going to figure out what was going on, and it would be okay. And that was a real contrast to the people around us. There was um, a lot of fear, a lot of crying, a lot of, there were people fainted, there was a pregnant woman who went into labor, um, and got rushed off, and uh, in that chaos, we were just sitting there and praying, and then all of a sudden, there was a group, um, some shouting, and somebody translated for us that there was somebody stuck in a building, a house had collapsed, and there was a really small old house in between the newer houses in our neighborhood, and it was this house in this picture right here, and Drew ran off following the people. He didn't understand what they were saying, but he went, and he saw a man furiously working on digging out one corner of this house right by the stairs and uh, it turned out his three kids were stuck inside that home and Drew was able to um, help 
find a way to get them out through a window, a small window, and they were okay. And it was just, it was just amazing. It, we saw that house and they thought, no way somebody could be okay underneath that. So we were just kind of, oh my goodness. And uh, we called our friends. Uh, the rest of the Sunderdoka community was actually having their weekly worship service. And we weren't there because we were, our kids were recovering from a stomach flu. Uh, and they were together when the earthquake started. And uh, in Nepal, when you start feeling a shake, at, when people who know earthquakes, we were thinking tornado, we didn't know what to do. But, <laughs> but if you're used to thinking about earthquakes, uh, you get outside because when you're outside in open ground, nothing can fall on you and nothing can hurt you. And so um, when the ground started shaking, all the people in the church, and 80% of this church has disabilities of some kind, were in the sanctuary worshiping Jesus. And Goma, the, one of the church leaders, the um, Bakasha's mom, she immediately went to the gate and locked it so no one could get out. And uh, she didn't know this, but if everyone had gotten out during that time, uh, there was a massive, like, eight-foot brick wall with barbed wire that lined the road right outside the door, and it just fell completely right up to the doorway of the church. And uh, two people were killed down the street, and several cars were crushed. And if our church family had left the building to go outside, they would have, they w it would have been really bad. And so um, later, Samaritan's Purse actually helped fund this building. They have an earthquake-proof newer building that's fabulous that was funded by Samaritan's Purse a few years ago. And when they arrived in Kathmandu after the earthquake, they interviewed Goma. They said, oh, Goma, we're so glad that you locked the gate and kept everyone safe. Did you do that because you knew the building was made for an earthquake? And she's like, oh, no. I didn't do it because of that. I knew that this was a house of God and a house of prayer. And I didn't know what would happen if our people left these gates. And um, she just has, excuse me, that kind of faith and that kind of just trust in God's goodness and what God will do um, just really characterizes that church family. And we're really grateful to be a part of their church family. Yeah, so... Uh, after that, uh, we ended up getting some of our belongings and went over to Sunderdoka uh, to camp out there and found it was had just become a place of refuge. All those people who were disabled, you know, their houses were collapsed and whatnot, and so they were taken care of. They were safe, and they were there. They were just there for the foreseeable future. We didn't know what was going to happen, so we had a couple hundred people there, and then neighbors' houses had fallen down, so other people had come to this place, and that's what it became, a place of refuge. We were piled on top of each other, and so we, we joined them. And, um, and it was great. We had a blessing of a, of a building we knew that wasn't going to fall down uh, with all the aftershocks. In the time that I was there, there were 300 aftershocks at least, so they were constant. And, uh, but unfortunately, this wall that had fallen down had taken out the power lines. And so because that power was out, uh, the filtration system wasn't working. So the water was no longer clean. And all the stores were closed, obviously. And, uh, you know, we were more or less trapped in because of this quarter-mile-long brick wall that had fallen down and had covered the entire road. Um, and so that was a real challenge. And over the next four days, uh, we were working on how to restore power uh, so that we could get clean water. And in the meantime, you know, we didn't have flushing toilets or running water for washing hands, and you know, we had hundreds of people we were taking care of, and so it, it, got, it got pretty intense. Uh, I got Giardia, 
Kids all got sick. I won't go into the details of what that looked like, but it wasn't fun. <laughs> Ate a lot of rice. Uh, and, uh, and so we realized, man, we have, to get, we have to get power. And so that was a big challenge. I won't go into all that. But one of the things that was uh, an issue was if we did get a generator or these things to bring to the building, how are we going to get them to the building with this rubble in the way? So we were calling around for bulldozers, and, you know, they were all busy. Nobody said they could help. And so <clears throat> one day we were sitting outside because they were predicting a big aftershock, and we were, the whole congregation and everybody was sitting outside in this field nearby, and I was frustrated that we weren't making progress, and how are we going to get things? And so I just decided I was going to grab my two boys. We were going to go up to this pile of bricks that was a quarter mile long, and we were just going to start throwing one brick at a time. And that's what we did, right, guys? We just picked up a brick, and we threw it across the street, another one across the street, and it was like, Dad, man, this is going to take a long time. Like, when are we going to do this? And I'm like, guys, I believe that if we just start doing this, other people are going to join us, and, and you'll see. Just wait. And within 15 minutes, we had 100 people. The whole neighborhood came out, all these disabled people, men, women, children, older people, uh, you know, able, disabled and they just started throwing bricks, pulling barbed wire. We didn't have gloves or anything. Pulling barbed wire out of the rubble, throwing bricks. And within a couple hours, we had the entire road cleared. And it was really cool. It was very encouraging because uh, people were able to do something. And, uh, and the next day, we got a generator and we were able to bring it right into the building and restore power and water. And so we had taken care of things that, that were going on there. And that was, that was really big. And so uh, that, was, that was kind of the immediate uh, uh, days following the earthquake. But as all this was going on, we were, uh, Bikash and Sundardoka, the church was getting calls from their connections all over the country in remote places in Nepal saying, hey, we need help. We need water. My house fell down. We need shelter. Uh, you know, we, we've got medical problems. There's people who are injured. And so he was hearing about all these needs. At the same time, um, we had uh, this nonprofit that we had set up uh, was just just became approved, and so we had Beautiful Gate Foundation was this nonprofit we had set up, and so we had people from the U.S. contacting us, how can we help, how can we send support? And so we had this vehicle to do that, and so we were able to match up the needs that we were hearing about with these funds and, and different uh, things that were coming in, and, um, and so it just was really practical, and we, uh, Lauren and the kids ended up leaving Nepal after a week after the earthquake, but I stayed back with Bakashim over the next four weeks. We, we went all over into these incredibly remote places of Nepal and saw a lot of destruction, uh, a lot of, of, heard a lot of hard stories and whatnot, but we just brought practical things to, to help. And, um, and so Bakash is still doing that. And uh, I, there's all kinds of stories I could tell there, so it's hard not to go into those, but uh, he's still working on that. And Bakash calls me every couple of days and says, hey, Drew, there's such and such a need. And, and so we're working with the resources we have here to kind of match those needs and, um, and doing that through, through Beautiful Gate Foundation. And, um, you know, we recognize how important that is. And, you know, it's kind of what Mark was talking about. It, you know, God, we realize that, you know, these tragic things happen and it's easy to throw in the towel or just to, man, this earth is 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 going to be destroyed and you know and and whatnot but reality is is god is a god of restoration and um and we have a part to play in that and that's part of that blessing you know so we are blessed and believe me this has been a real struggle is man we're so blessed and we see one of the poorest countries in the world and then 
you know, it just gets destroyed by this earthquake. And that was really rough. And we realized that we had a role to play with that blessing and to be a blessing to others and um, in a really practical way. And so we're, we, we've got a lot of plans. We've got a couple trips uh, immediately that we're, we're working on. And uh, one of those is going to be a post-trauma care trip for kids. Um, as we know, that's a really big issue going on right now. And another need is uh, we have basically among two different very remote villages that are in the epicenters of, there's actually two earthquakes. There's the first one and a bigger one that was a couple, or another large one that was a couple weeks later. And so we've got uh, villages there that we're responsible for uh, and trying to help um, these farmers, these rural uh, areas rebuild their, all of their houses. All the houses are destroyed in those areas. And so we have 515 houses that we need to go and help them with resources and, and education to know how to build houses that won't fall down. And so uh, we just invite you to continue to pray and uh, be involved. And, um, you know, we, we have been so blessed by Hillcrest gave a huge uh, chunk of change right when the earthquake happened, and I, I can't tell you how important that was, uh, you know, there, because that was such a critical time, because the needs were immediate, and we didn't have to do some, you know, hey, we need your help, and will you approve this back and forth, but that money was there right away to help us to start moving and start responding right away, and lives were saved because of that, and so we just thank you for that support, and we would welcome you to continue to pray for us and for people of Nepal. Well, we are grateful for you being able to come and share with us, too. I have just a couple of questions. I imagine there are many of you that have questions as well, too, but I get to ask a couple, at least, and you can talk to them afterwards. You talked about your, you went because of your values. You know, that it wasn't, you didn't, you know, God didn't, you know, you didn't hear a voice from the skies, and it didn't seem like it was an easy thing to do. It was values-driven. What are those, what were some of those values that characterized you taking such an incredible uh, trip? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, my favorite passage, my favorite part of the Bible is when Jesus tells the two most important commandments, love God, love people. I just love that clear bell that just is such an easy target when everything else gets confusing, knowing that's what we're to do. And so really, I mean, this, there was a long road to where we got to, but all of this came out of that, loving God and loving people. And, uh, and so, although it was kind of impractical, it was also a practical decision to go. And, uh, and you know, the timing was always going to be awkward. There was never going to be a great time to go. But we decided to go because it made sense, because we had that relationship. And also because of passages like Psalm 67 and others that call us to be a blessing to the nations. And so that's how we responded. It was, you know, it was, the timing was, was arbitrary, really, uh, the amount of time to go. I remember kind of thinking through that, and, and it, was, it was arbitrary. But six weeks into the trip, it no longer became arbitrary. It was obvious that God had it ordained that moment in time for us to be there. And, you know, likewise, you know, setting up the nonprofit, it seemed like a good idea to do, but nobody said, Drew, you need to go, or Lauren, you guys should go and do all these things. It was just kind of practical decisions that led to that. And that nonprofit, 
usually we, we submitted a 501c3 application. Usually it takes three to six months to, to be completed. Uh, we submitted our, our, our request just a couple weeks before the earthquake and we're told just days before the earthquake that it was approved. And so when things like that had happened, that was when it was one of those rare moments that in life where we realized that we were in the center of God's will for us. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and that his sovereignty was, was a stronghold for us to lean into during those tough moments and stuff. And so, um, you know, kind of our takeaways from that were, were that God doesn't always want us just, you, you know, there's not always going to be a clear, uber spiritual calling to go, you know, to Nepal or whatever. Uh, you know, God will bless the practical decisions just to, to move forward, to be a blessing. And uh, we can't always just wait for a dream or a vision or a, someone to come and tell us, you should go. And so, um, you know, that gave us a lot of, um, yeah, confidence yeah. that God, if we, are, if we are faithful to follow verses, you know, yeah. passages like Psalm 67, God will bless it, and he will end up using us in ways that we could never imagine. Yeah. That'll preach, won't it? And the, 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 really, that that it, it, we we discover afterwards how remarkable it is that God's put us in this place, and just the exhilaration of that actually occurs on the back end of that, right? Were you going to say something else? Though? Well, I was just going to say I think another value that we have experienced over the last ten years or more is when we have spent time with people from other places, we have seen God in bigger ways and mm. it has increased our understanding of God and it has increased our capacity to love him and to understand his love yeah. and I think that that's why we keep going back to that yeah. um, because that's been one of the ways that God's really spoken to us and grabbed our hearts and we feel alive when we see that side of God and yeah and isn't it that's actually in scripture it talks about if you want to know God know the poor there, there are some ways we can't know God without being connected with people whose lives have no flourishing in them. So, you know, it'd be easy for us to walk out of here and say, well, glad, sure glad they went to Nepal, but I, I believe that the reason why God wants them to come and share this story is because there are places that aren't Nepal that God is involved, inviting every single one of us into without the drama of a voice from heaven, but just a simple values-driven decision. I'm wondering, you know, kids ask the greatest questions, and I'm sure they asked a few questions in the middle of this uh, that were better than yours, and you had to figure out, okay, what is that about? What are things about? What's got to, were there any particular questions that um, you wrestled with or you learned from through your kids? Well, I mean, to be honest, we're still wrestling with some of those questions, and they're the same questions that, that, that I have had from a theological distance, you know. They're easier theologically from a distance, Yes, right? yes, they're easier <laughs> that way to think of, you know, why do bad things happen to, to people, yeah. and, and how does that happen? And, uh, and so then being in the midst of that, uh, yeah, I couldn't just keep that, that theological distance, you know, and had to really wrestle with that, and we still are, yeah. and it's going to be hard to, you know, fully unwrap that, and I don't think I'll ever have an answer to that, but basically what I've come to peace with is God's sovereignty, and recognizing that God's sovereignty 
doesn't mean that, you know, we, Lauren and I reflect on this a lot. We had no fear, I mean, to be completely honest with you, during the earthquake or in the weeks after. There was no fear involved in us, and it was so evident everywhere else around us. And as we reflect on that, we're, why is that? And it was because it was one of those moments we felt that we were in God's will. You know, he had us where he wanted us. It wasn't because we felt God will always keep us safe. You know, we don't have to worry about our kids. And, you know, people will be hurt and dying around us, but we are chosen and we're going to be safe. That's not what it meant at all. Instead, God's sovereignty meant he is in control and we're not. And so us worrying and having fear in those times, trying to control all these things that are impossible to control, is, is, is doomed to failure. And, and we are called to be to glorify God. And in those moments when things are out of control, those are the easiest times to glorify God and just to give up and lean on him for, for those things. And so long story short, basically God is sovereign and we don't understand that sovereignty. We don't understand why some houses collapse and kids live and other collapse and they don't, you know, and that's hard. And we're still, we're still wrestling with those questions and as are our kids, yeah. but we know that God is in control and he's a good God. And it's interesting the, that the ramifications of that were as simple as you walking out on the road with some hope and say, let's just go start throwing bricks. You know, that your hope actually created an overflow of that in the community. Yeah, it was, it was great. And, and, you know, just to reflect on our goals going into this, you know, one of those was giving our kids a broader worldview, and uh, we, we nailed that one. So... <laughs> But wow. that lesson, having those boys be the first ones throwing bricks across the road and then seeing how God can use just the smallest one brick at a time uh, for his kingdom uh, and for his blessing was, was awesome. Something yeah. I could never teach on my own. Yeah. How about you, Lauren? Any question that kids asked or generated in, in you? Um, I just think when the earth was rolling, Oliver looked at me, and we were holding hands and sitting down, and he's like, are we going to die? And I looked at him, and I said, I don't know. I don't think so. I think we're going to be okay, but Jesus is with us. And it seemed, it seems simplistic to say that now after the fact, but I think, I think it speaks into what Drew already shared about the depth of peace. Like, I got to test and see that even when everything was shaking around us, I knew that God was good. And even if we weren't okay, it would be okay. Like God's goodness is not dependent on the things around me. And I hope that our kids got to see that too and, and that those things will be building blocks in their faith as they process over the years mm -hmm. to come. But um, there's, yeah, vulnerability and um, questions. Why do we go? Why do we do this? And we're still questions. A question came in, up in the car on the way here. Just, was it, was it because God was angry, you know? And yeah. those are questions they've heard and questions other people talk about. And um, they're good because they keep us pressing into what happened and what we really do believe yeah. about it and what we know is true and what we don't and yeah. how we can rest in that truth. Yeah, and I think those are such rich questions to ask because if we don't ask them, our faith is just so superficial, right? And we never begin to understand the character of who God is. So, so we, we want to apply this in our own lives. And, and the question for us is, where are the places that you know of where the earth is shaking under people's feet? Uh, where there are huge questions about the character of God, where 
there's a need for someone to step in and be a person of hope. Uh, where are those places? I, I think that's what God has called for us as individuals because we all network out of here. But there's another question too as far as Nepal is concerned and our partnership there. And, and you know, we, we acknowledge that first Sunday morning, this is ours to be responsible for. You know, God's given us this through the Tibetan language, through Sunadoga, through you guys going, what is the next step, do you think, for Hillcrest? Any, any thoughts? Yeah, um, well, this relationship between our church and their church, between Mission Adelante, the Bhutanese community here, is so unique. Um, Sundradoka has relationships with churches all over the world, and it was, it was really fun to be there and see, you know, those relationships and how God is blessing them. But we're, we're very uniquely situated, uh, and a lot of that has to do with, with this neighborhood, Kansas City, Kansas, and what's going on here. And, and, so, and, and that is for people that don't know. Right. So Bhutanese refugees who are living up in Kansas City, Kansas, who are Nepali culture, speak the same language, same culture, same understanding. And so I think that the biggest opportunity is for us to be working with them and, and strengthening uh, our understanding and, and blessing them. They're, they're a place where that's not flourishing, that we can get involved in right now. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and so, but I think that leads to relationships with Sundradoka as well and equips us to play a role over there that other relationships outside of here can't play. Yeah. And um, so anyway, that, that's what I would say. Yeah, and obviously there are financial needs. Um, Drew talked about we've committed to help rebuild 515 homes, and um, we need to fund that. And yeah. so there's those things, but even more so is just prayer, and Hillcrest values prayer. And we have felt your prayers for our family helping us float through this season. And uh, our friends at Sundradoka really need your prayers. There's still fear around. They're battling it daily. Um, there's fatigue. Many people haven't slept because of uh, aftershocks and just the uncertainty. And many people are sleeping outside, in, uh, not necessarily in the city, but all around Nepal. People are sleeping outside in makeshift kind of structures. Um, and it's raining a lot. So there's all of that. That has to be draining for anyone. And, um, and also just the leadership. They're, anyone who has capacity to serve others is serving constantly and pouring yeah. themselves out. And every time Drew talks to Bukash, and whenever I think of his wife, Bijada, who came here and, um, to visit us too, just, I just think how much they need God's grace to be fueling them and just refining refreshment and hearing his voice and that kind of encouragement and buoy that only people outside can really i mean that's what we can really give because we have that to offer and so as we lift them up in prayer and uh, support them yeah. i think that's big well thank you and after it, we close we'll be praying for you guys too but thank you so much for sharing with us this morning daniel